Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So I have to say a few things before we get going here. One of them is we have a philosophy on this show that anything can be interesting if you dive deeply and well into it. And really, the more quotidian that thing is, the more baked into your environment it is, the more likely it is that you haven't asked a lot of questions about it. And that if we do ask a lot of questions about it, interesting things will be revealed. So with that in mind, we're doing a show about toothbrushes, something you probably think you know a lot about. Um, one of the other reasons we're doing a show about toothbrushes is, is because our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, is a, a toothbrusher of of note. I don't know how else to say it. Like anytime we don't know where Betsy Kaplan is during the day, it turns out she's in the bathroom brushing her teeth. And she uses a manual toothbrush. None of this electric stuff for her, no sir. So, um, and as I started thinking about today's show and kind of getting ready for today's show, I realized how incredibly intimate toothbrushes are, too. There's a scene from a movie, Bring It On, which I was unaware of, uh, a 2000 movie, in which two characters played by Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Bradford. I watched this scene today. And it's pretty clear to me, not having seen the rest of the movie, that they, they are not hooked up at this time. But they arrive in the, the bathroom at the same time of this house that they're both living in. And they both brush their teeth. And they kind of have a brush off. They have almost a, sort of a competitive teeth brushing moment. It goes on for about a minute. Um, and it's both pretty impressive at the level of toothbrushing technique, but also very intimate. There's something very well, kind of sexual and erotic though, about the fact that they're both brushing their teeth and kind of looking competitively at each other. But it also can be, it can be sublime like that. It can also be very profane. If you remember the story from the University of Hartford of the two roommates who didn't get along and one of them was sabotaging the other one's life. And one of the things she claimed to be doing was defiling the roommate's toothbrush in a way that I won't even describe to you. So, I mean, it's a point of vulnerability for us, too, I guess. You know, so that something can get you through your toothbrush. So we have a lot of people to talk to you today, but we really need to get going with uh, Mark Berhenna. He is a practicing dentist who blogs at Ask the Dentist. Uh, he has investigated many, many aspects of tooth care and of toothbrushes in particular. Uh, and he's been a consultant uh, even to one of the companies that uh, inspired us to do this show. So, Mark Berhenna, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Glad to be here. So, I mean, you know, some people will be thinking, well, there's nothing new under the sun having to do with toothbrushes. And we should maybe start there. There are innovations that go on all the time. Uh, probably the newest thing right now is the so-called smart toothbrush that, that connects via Bluetooth to your phone and somehow or other integrates your digital life into the brushing of your teeth. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and what you think of it. Well, uh, specifically, a, a Bluetooth-connected electric toothbrush uh, that has a charging base and a cord and comes in a big box, and you have maybe five or six different selections to make of which brand you want to go with. I think it's a little bit over the top. I mean, I like to keep brushing simple, and as you said earlier, um, it, 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 we are not mindful when we brush. It's a very subconscious activity uh, or unconscious um, kind of uh, thinking about well, I'm just picking it up, but I'm doing something else. I'm texting, maybe I'm reading, um, 
maybe I'm trying to talk while I'm brushing to someone, um, and that's not what we want. We, it's not about the brush. It's about the relationship with the toothbrush. And I don't think Bluetooth connectivity is necessarily a good thing, but if it helps motivate you, then why not? But you're going to pay dearly for it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it depends on what kind of person you are, too. I'm, I'm the kind of person who's motivated by my Fitbit because uh, I want to make my Fitbit happy, which is an irrational uh, attitude to have. And I would probably have the same thing. I'd probably brush better if I did that. But, I mean, there's also this question. I mean, some of these uh, to- these smart toothbrushes, they're sort of looking at your teeth. There's one of them that I think sort of has a camera where you can yeah. see your teeth on the <laughs> on the screen of your phone, and you kind of wonder, wow, does that data just stay in my phone, or is it like everything else? Is somebody going right. to know about my teeth? Right. Well, the question is, and I've, I've heard of that toothbrush, and, and that's a novel concept, although I'm not sure. I mean, I, I look in the mouth all day long, and it, it's it's a... It's a lot of saliva and, and other fluids, and, and it, it, it's, you don't see that much. Um, unless you have loops on, you know what to look for. So uh, I think that's a little bit of a gimmick. But, um, you know, it's, that data, what, how useful is that data on a Fitbit, on a, on a, on a toothbrush? And, and, yes, if it tells you how many times you've brushed and you've brushed for two minutes and you've done it three times a day and you get a little score for that or a, a reward, um, especially for children um, and maybe even teenagers, that's that's a good use of that technology, uh, but you're right. Where does where does that data go? And are companies collecting uh, data on habits of people? When do they brush, or do they brush, and how long do they brush for? Um, we went out in the streets. When I say we, I mean Betsy Kaplan went out in the streets to, to talk to people about their toothbrushing habits. Uh, let's hear what some of them had to say, and then uh, we can uh, get some comments from Mark Berhenna. So we're doing a show on toothbrushes on Wednesday. Anybody want to talk about electric or manual, and soft, medium, or hard bristles? Medium and manual. Okay, so why not electric? <laughs> why not electric? Just the cost. Okay, so the medium brush, do you get do you get any flack from your dentist about not using soft bristles? No, because I, I, use, the, I use the soft bristles. Oh, I thought you said medium. Oh, medium? No, sorry, I meant soft. What do you like best about the electric? I like that it has a timer, mm-hmm. so I make sure that I brush my teeth for the full two minutes. And I like that it's a small brush head, like it fits in my mouth pretty easily, and it's really nice to massage the gums. I want to know if you use a manual or an electric toothbrush. A manual. How come? Because the electric makes me gag. Well, there you go. Um, probably nothing you haven't heard uh, before, Mark Berhenna. Right. But, but some interesting things come up here, including, you know, particularly if you're going to use, well, let's start with that whole question, manual versus electric. Uh, is there any reason to prefer one over the other? Right. Well, it's a very common question. And, and just hearing those people, it illustrates to me, and something that I've known for quite a while and agree with, is that everyone's different. And, and there's a toothbrush out there for you, and you can find it. And, of course, I have my specific recommendations uh, on bristle strength and all that. But manual and electric, uh, the short answer is uh, there's not a big difference. It's whatever you can afford and what you like to do and what works well in your bathroom. You know, what are you willing to pick up and use? I think that's, it's that relationship with the toothbrush. It's something that you want to use. Some people don't like, like electric, as you heard. Um, the Sonicare uh, in the beginning can be quite intimidating. It tickles, and it can even be painful for some people. Um, uh, you know, uh, for kids, uh, an electric toothbrush can be very aggressive, and it also makes a mess. You know, if you if you pour toothpaste on your toothbrush head and turn it on too soon, it's literally going to leave a spray pattern on your mirror or your countertops. Um, so it's really a very personal thing. 
So, you know, one person talked about the head of the toothbrush, and this is very specific, I think, to uh, some kind of electronic or electric toothbrush. And probably something people don't do often enough is change that head, right? Right, yeah. That is a real problem. And uh, I think dentists have been talking about it for quite a while. I don't think we've done a good enough job. But uh, nylon, which was invented back in the 30s, I mean, that's a very stiff, strong, inert material. and it's it's now the standard for toothbrush uh, uh, heads, and you know it can be it can be done poorly where they become very or where they are very cutting like and aggressive, and they can they can wear enamel and dentin, or they can be polished and end rounded and done properly. But even that wears out after a while. So it may sound a bit extreme, but I would replace a toothbrush head at least every two to three months. And then uh, the question is is you know uh, who reminds you to do that? How do you know that? Uh, it's two to three months old. And, of course, there are a lot of dental toothbrush companies now that do that for you, which is, I think, a very nice thing. All right. Yeah, so one company that you've uh, done some work with is Quip. Uh, they're a company that advertises a lot on podcasts. They, I start, that's how I started to hear about them. And they're a subscription service. They basically take the same, you know, whether it's like MeUndies or, uh, or some kind of, you know, subscription clothing service or something. They, they've applied the same thing, right? You sign right. up, you get, the, you get the head of the toothbrush, or like Harry's shaving. And then... As, as needed or as they think you're, it's needed, they send you more heads. And I assume the toothbrush also tells you, hey, change my head. Well, actually, it doesn't. And, um, and uh, you know, I mean, cars will tell you when to be, you know, when they need a tune-up based on wear and all that. And I don't think that actually uh, works well with a toothbrush. But, um, I mean, that's a great service. And I think Quip, for example, um, they, they really have a good understanding of what the toothbrush is and what our relationship should be with the toothbrush. It's not about the brush. It's about how we use it. They educate you. They send you out uh, little uh, email reminders and a little newsletter. And so I really like that approach. It's kind of like if you don't have a dentist or you're not seeing your dentist every day, you know, it's a great replacement uh, and a motivator for, okay, you know, this is why a toothbrush head that's more than three months old is bad for you. And uh, so that's, that's a wonderful, I mean, it's a direct sale concept like the Shave Club. Um, and you get great pricing and all that. But that, that is wonderful. I mean, that's the kind of relationship I want with my toothbrush, but that's also what I want to do for my patients. I want to explain to them. I, I don't want to shame them into saying, thinking that, you know, if you don't brush your teeth, they're going to fall out. I want them to see the positive side of it. You're going to have a great smile. You're going to connect with people, and you're going to have easier and shorter dental visits. You know, obviously, the toothbrush is one of the few things with, that we're not eating, that we're just sticking into our mouth. And, and with that comes a certain amount of risk. When we started preparing for this show and just sort of Googling some different questions and stuff, we, I kept getting all these things talking about basically poop on my toothbrush, that there's going to uh-huh. be uh, fecal bacteria on your toothbrush almost no matter what you do, at least if you store it anywhere in the bathroom, forget about it. Well, t- yeah. talk, Tell us about this. I mean, how, yeah, no, how worried I mean, should the, we be? The studies are credible. It's easy to study. You know, you just put a pitcher dish into your bathroom and come back a day later, and you can pretty much culture whatever is being thrown around there. There are a lot of aerosols in a bathroom, especially in a public bathroom, for example, those hand air dryers. Uh, There's some reports now that that is stirring up things, and you can get these bugs into right. your lung. So, lungs. So, um, I, I personally, I mean, the ADA would recommend that you store your toothbrush in an upright position and let it air dry. And I, I actually like to clean my toothbrush by dipping it into a little solution of uh, uh, distilled water or very clean water and some baking soda, and maybe once a month, uh, maybe uh, 10, 15-minute soak in some um, 
you know, uh, apple cider, uh, some white vinegar, that kind of thing. Something very natural, then rinse it out with water, and then, and then keep using it. So you do need to disinfect your toothbrush, because um, it is something that you put in your mouth. And, I mean, I, I, I find it amazing that we are willing to take a toothbrush, sometimes someone else's toothbrush, which is amazing, to think that we do that, but and put it into our mouths and not really think about it. Where if we pick up a fork, we wonder is has it been used? Uh, if we drink from someone else's glass, is that a clean glass? Uh, you know that kind of thing. So it is a very interesting, very automatic kind of interesting relationship what we have with the with the toothbrush and mm-hmm. how we use it and and the willingness of us to use it the way we do. Well, not everybody doesn't worry about this. We have an example from popular culture of somebody who thought a lot about this problem under emergency circumstances. Hey. Hi. How you feeling? Good. My call's gone, and I've been looking forward to kissing you, which I'm ready to do now, if you are ready. (laughs) (laughs) What? Nothing. I just, I, uh... I bruised my lip. I was drinking a celery, and I brought it up too fast, and I banged it into my lip, and then I knocked your toothbrush into the toilet, and I wasn't able to tell you before you could use it. What? I'm sorry. When were you going to tell me this? Obviously, never. Jerry Seinfeld, uh, unwilling to kiss the his girlfriend. The original anti-dentite. Yes, I recognize his voice. That was a funny episode. Yes. So, um, so there you go. I mean, there's a problem. I, one thing I have to say, and we're talking to Mark, Mark Brahena right now, uh, who blogs. He's a practicing dentist who blogs at Ask the Dentist, which, by the way, is a terrific blog. And I kind of got went down in the rabbit hole with it. And there are all, all kinds of interesting things that you write about, including most recently, I think, first of all, this company, which is amusingly called Dr. Tongue, which is kind of a strange name for a tooth company. But um, but Dr. Tongue has this kind of toothbrush cover that disinfects your toothbrush, right? Right. And uh, I, u- I use that often. Uh, I like having toothbrushes stashed everywhere in the car and different places. But of course, back to that, you know, how clean is your toothbrush uh, discussion? Um, you know, you have to protect your toothbrush. And this is a little snap-on cover that fits nicely over the toothbrush head. So it's very small and portable. And it has some essential oil seeds in there, and it kind of, uh, through an aromatic uh, kind of effect, it uh, makes it taste nice, and it keeps it clean, and, and I wouldn't use the word uh, disinfect, but it, it, at least it protects it from picking up dust and dirt and things that wherever you store this will, will get picked up by the toothbrush. So it's very convenient and very nice, and it makes it, it, makes it um, palatable. In other words, if you, if you keep a toothbrush in your middle console in the car, along with, you know, all the other stuff you keep in there, pens and things like that, you're less likely to grab it because, you know, who knows who's been playing around with it? What if, what if it dropped on the floor uh, with another driver in the family and they just put it back? Well, at least you've got the cover over the head. Well, true. I don't know. We did a whole show about biomes that persuaded me not to worry so much about this stuff. But, um, but, but I, I realize that also that people do. So, um, Mark, I mean, kind of last bottom line question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for a person who is going to pick out a new toothbrush, I mean, it, it, it is a little bewildering these days. You've got these subscription services. You've got electronic, electric toothbrushes. You've got oscillating ones, ones that use sonic waves. You've got – and so let's say that you have just sort of a normal person's budget. You don't have hammock or schlummer money. Um, what's, what's like a sensible thing to get that'll do right. the job? Yeah. Well, my, my reply to that usually is it's based on your age and the condition of your mouth. For example, if you're very healthy and your, um, your gums are in good shape, and then I think a, an oscillating uh, uh, type of toothbrush would be fine, like the Oral-B or the Gobi, um, because that removes stain nicely. It's very efficient at removing the pellicle, the biofilm, the plaque layer, um, and they're inexpensive. You can get those for $20, $30, the low-end models. 
Uh, but the minute you start getting gum recession and you get these little spaces opening up in between the teeth, they're called embrasures, embrasure spaces, black triangles is sometimes what we call them. Food gets caught in there, and sometimes an oscillatory type of toothbrush may not necessarily get in there. So then you start using these brushes that emit the, uh, the, uh, the sonic the sonic sound waves, essentially. It's a 30,000 cycle per minute vibrating head, and, and those, those brushes tend to work beyond the bristles. There, there tends to be a, uh, an effect beyond, you know, if you don't touch it, but at least you're zapping it and, and pulling out that, that debris that's in between the teeth. So people, I mean, short answer, people over 40, maybe that type of toothbrush, a sonic toothbrush. If you're in good health, you've got a lot of options. Uh, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, oscillatory or just a vibrating toothbrush like the Quip is, is fine. Um, again, and then, of course, find a toothbrush that you like, something that you like holding. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, toothbrush designers that are industrial uh, designers, and they're trying to produce something that looks nice, looks nice on your countertop. Maybe it doesn't have charging cords. Maybe you don't want a charging cord. Uh, cord. Uh, maybe you want to travel with it. So find what you like. I mean, again, it's not about the brush. It's about what you do with it. Right. And, so if you would yeah. understand your toothbrush, first understand yourself. Um, and that's yeah. a good segue. We're about to uh, add a philosopher to the conversation. But thanks so much to Mark Berhanna, uh, the dentist who blogs at Ask the Dentist. Go check out the blog. Your life will never be the same. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, so we are. We are going to switch to a philosopher, uh, a chief philosopher, in fact, chief operating philosopher at the Museum of Everyday Life. Uh, that is Claire Dolan. Uh, everyday Life includes toothbrushes. So let's speak historically and philosophically uh, with Claire Dolan about toothbrushes. Hi, Claire. Hi. So um, let's, start, let's start philosophically. One of the things that you, in your Marcus Aurelius-like meditations about toothbrushes, realize, I mean, it is like sort of a ritual that pretty much everybody does. We don't all do it together. We don't all do it with each other. But there's a way in which it is kind of a, an umb umbilical connection we all share. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the reasons uh, I was drawn to the toothbrush as a subject matter for, for an exhibit at the Museum of Everyday Life um, is because it's such, um, such a great equalizer. You know, everybody brushes their teeth. Kings, presidents, you know, peasants. Workers, everybody brushes their teeth, or or should anyway, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and the toothbrush is a is an implement that we often carry around with us, you know, in in backpacks and purses and briefcases. Um, we touch it and use it multiple times every day. So it's sort of a great common denominator, and it's an incredibly intimate implement um, that we somehow aren't ashamed to sort of brandish in public and, and, and you know, have with us, um, you know, on our, on our desks at work or, or what have you. Um, so for, for me, it was a really appealing object for, for that reason. <clears throat> yeah, it, it does have all of that. And I think it's also kind of connected to it's connected to what we ingest, too. I mean, basically, we're trying to brush away the things that we've eaten and, and imbibed, right? Well, the toothbrush interacts with our mouth, and the mouth, you know, is an incredibly, um, <clears throat> it's an incredibly uh, weighty place, if you think about it. It's, it's, it's not only the place where things enter into our body, you know, one of the few portals where we let stuff in, but it's also the seat of our, of our speech. And, you know, speech is arguably one of those things that makes um, us humans human. Um, so it's really, it interacts with this place that, that um, has a lot of power, 
Um, it allows us to sort of take things in, but it also allows us to articulate, you know, our desires and our dreams and our thoughts. Um, it's also the mouth is an interesting place because our teeth is really the, they're the only example of, of bones that we have that are exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most of our bones, of course, are are deep inside of our, our bodies, but um, the teeth are out there. Um, and uh, so it's an incredibly interesting place of vulnerability also, you know. Um, and with that brushing, you know, that ritual brushing, the, the, the teeth wear and um, change and age in this very visible um visible way that we're interacting with all the time when we're brushing our teeth. All right, so we're talking to Claire Dolan, Chief Operating Philosopher at the Museum of Everyday Life. You know, it's kind of interesting because, and maybe we can circle back to this, but one of the things that the museum does exhibit uh, are toothbrushes that have been converted into weapons, usually in a prison environment. And the reason, there's kind of an interesting connection here because uh, the, the sort of the Western toothbrush appears to have been invented by somebody in prison, a man named William Addis, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And and this is a little bit of hearsay. You know, there's not a lot of documentation to really support um, this historically, but legend has it that the toothbrush was invented by an English rag merchant whose name was William Addis. And um, apparently in about, uh, around 1780, he got into a brawl in a pub and got thrown into jail. And uh, while he was languishing there in that dank and dark jail cell, he uh, he had a lot of time on his hands and apparently a foul-tasting mouth. So um, the story has it that he spied a broom in the corner of a room and uh, was inspired to um, make some holes into a piece of bone he found from the jail cell floor and um, stick some bristles into the bone, and voila, the toothbrush was, was born. Um, after he was released from prison, he did begin to sell them, and he um, established a, a, a toothbrush enterprise that became really prosperous, um, and in the end was producing a lot of a lot of models of toothbrushes. He sort of invented the idea of a different toothbrush for every person. You know, he had a gentleman's toothbrush and a lady's toothbrush and a child's toothbrush, and even a teeny weeny toothbrush called the Tom Thumb for for little babies. Right, so he goes from prison to he's employing 60 workers and, and uh, selling toothbrushes made of horsehair and bone, and uh, it's sort of like a you know, prison reentry success story. <laughs> yeah. I had always assumed the toothbrush had been, was invented by Oral Roberts. But, um, <laughs> so um, we should talk, maybe t- do talk about one other historical figure, because for a long time after William Addis, it's still very inconvenient. You've got to go out in the woods. You've got to kill a wild boar. You've got to take the bristles off the boar. Uh, you know, you've got to put them on your tooth brush, uh, or you got to get a horse to give up its hair or something like that. Uh, it would be great if there was some kind of artificial component uh, that would take the place of these bristles. Uh, so enter Wallace Carruthers leading a team uh, at DuPont. And, and what happens, Claire? Well, Mr. Carruthers was a brilliant chemist. He worked at DuPont. He, he made a number of important um, uh, research discoveries, but the one he's most famous for is he invented nylon and uh, the replacement of animal hair bristles with nylon bristles really revolutionized the way that toothbrushes were manufactured and of course nylon went on to have countless other 
applications, but um, poor Mr. Carruthers, he suffered from depression. He felt like his life's work at DuPont was really a failure, and he actually committed suicide um, shortly after he discovered nylon. So he never lived to see, you know, what his invention came to mean to the industrial world. But but I should say that, you know, the real inventors of the toothbrush were back in ancient China. Um, the Chinese invented everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, they were using, Chinese monks were using toothbrushes in the Tang Dynasty, you know, like in the year 907, um, far before any of this stuff happened in the Western world. Right. Well, I mean, Tang will just rot your teeth out, so you got to do something. Exactly, right? So, um... We should say the one thing about this. I alluded to this before. So the toothbrush has this kind of notoriety, the modern toothbrush. Uh, it's not the first thing I would think of, of converting into a weapon or shiv uh, if I were in prison, which I haven't been lately. But it really is something that people do, right? You've got uh, some exhibits of them. <clears throat> yeah, we did a lot of research, and we came up with a lot of um, images of weapons, homemade weapons that have been confiscated in jails. And, um, you know, a huge number of them were fashioned out of toothbrushes. And we had our Museum of Everyday Life um, uh, uh, um, artifact team reconstruct some of these weapons um, from the photographs. And we have some of those on display. Um, And that's why a lot of um, prisons nowadays do not allow standard toothbrushes in the prisons. They, They dole out these sort of altered little plastic toothbrushes that have a very short, stubby, and very round handle that makes them much harder to turn into any kind of a weapon. So Claire Dolan, chief operating philosopher at the Museum of Everyday Life, I am not the kind of person who walks up to total strangers and asks them, you know, what kind of toothbrushing tool they used. That would be Betsy Kaplan. Um, but I'm going to ask you because we're having this conversation. Now that you've curated this, now that you've philosophized and meditated about the toothbrush, uh, how are you brushing your teeth these days? What are you, are you electric, uh, oscillating, sonic, manual? What are you doing? Oh, these you know, I'm a real traditionalist, um, and these days I'm using a, a manual toothbrush, and, you know, I, I like to change it up, so sometimes I use one model, sometimes I use another model. Um, I'm going in the bathroom right now. It looks like today <laughs> I'm using an Oral-B, um, and it's the kind that has, you know, the bristles that tell you when they're too worn out and you have to get a new toothbrush. And in fact, it is time for me to replace my toothbrush. All right. So uh, history is uh, in the making here. Uh, we're bringing you, we're breaking, <laughs> this is a breaking story. Claire has to replace her toothbrush. Well, listen, it's been a tremendous talking to you and we recommend the Museum of Everyday Life uh, to other people. Uh, they can uh, find it online. Uh, and thanks for talking to us today. All right. You're very welcome. All right. We're going to take a break. We are, in fact, doing one of our deep dives into an everyday object. In this case, it is the humble toothbrush. And we'll tell you more when we return. Take him up and put his little feet on the stool by the bathroom sink You grab the crust and a Dixie cup It all hits you as he opens up Love starts with a toothbrush Isn't it time? Time you bought the whole family fresh, clean, new prophylactic toothbrushes. Prophylactic, of course. This world-famous line includes a style, size, and texture for every taste and need. 
The pro tufted, for example, with its special end tuft to get at those hard to reach back teeth. Or the new Pro 59, the totally different toothbrush with thousands of extra thin bristles. You never felt a brush so gentle yet so sturdy. Or this brush, specially sized for children's mouths. Look for the prophylactic toothbrush display at any drug counter. All right. Now, I guess that's the way that you can uh, ask for a prophylactic without being embarrassed. Um, so uh, this brings us to the whole question of toothbrushes and in the history of New England. Uh, we are going to turn our eyes slightly north of where I'm sitting right now uh, to the beautiful and historic town of Northampton, where once upon a time there was a toothbrush manufacturer. Uh, joining us right now are Stan Shearer, a photojournalist, documentary filmmaker of The Brush Shop and member of the Board of Trustees for Historic Northampton, and Terry Minnick, former former and last owner of Pro Brush in Northampton. So um, I'm going to have both of you do this, but maybe, uh, Terry, you could just begin by just sketch out the, the, the history of, of Pro Brush. When, when was Pro Brush a company and uh, like how, how big a player in the toothbrush market did it become? Uh, well, Colin, you know, I came to Pro in, in 1986, so obviously I came in late to the party. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, Pro, it, it had its, uh, its, its, you know, before Pro, uh, before the prophylactic company itself, there was a company called the Florence Company, and they made sewing notions and buttons, and they started in, um, like, uh, 1847. And then, according to the our company history, Pro made the world's first production toothbrush uh, in the early 1880s, and he made it out of bone and, and hog hair bristles. And then, you know, it, it made a transition into into wood handles, and then it made a transition into what we call thermoset handles, and then the thermoplastic uh, handles. And um, the business was was uh, locally owned, and then it was sold to Warner Lambert, which later became Warner Lambert in the 1930s. And then it was sold in 1963 to Standard Oil of Ohio, and then uh, it was sold to Rexall sometime in the late 70s. And then I came in in uh, in in uh, 1986, and I sold the brush business to another company that combined it with what they had. And so at that point in time, the Pro Corporation, which had been the prophylactic brush company, ceased making brushes of any kind. So that's kind of the history in a nutshell. That was a good history in a nutshell. Let's hear a, a little clip here, uh, uh, a little something uh, uh, from the documentary, I think, about boar bristle brushes. My grandmother actually did some work at home for them, and it was separating and grading the hairs from the backs of boars that came from China, I think. They came in from. But um, she would do that, and she was paid so much a box. And actually, my father helped her sometimes do it also at, the, at home. So Stan Shearer, this is somebody talking about, I mean, I don't know, I made a joke about this 20 minutes ago on the show, but this is a real thing. The, the, they, somebody had to pick bristles off of a, a boar to make toothbrushes? That's right. And these were wild boar in the, what I understand, the Siberian region of China. <clears throat> and, uh, and the voice we heard was Tom Gagne, who worked uh, at, uh, at the brush shop for many, many years. And his father and his uncle also worked there. It's kind of a family tradition. And another interesting thing is the photograph I came upon was made by Lewis Hine. And uh, I found that particularly interesting because I know Hine photographed 
in the factories in Holyoke, but I did not know that he was also photographing in Northampton. I mean, Stan, did you get the feeling that it's at its apex, uh, this company made Northampton or neighboring Florence or Haydenville or wherever, but I, mean, I guess Northampton, was it like a really a toothbrush town at one point, or oh, was yes. it just many of, one of many factories? Yes. Oh, the, the, the brush shop was one of the most important industries in the region, and uh, actually, of course, probably the most important plastics company in the country. <clears throat> So, Terry, um, there was a, a, there was some evolution that had to go on. Uh, you know, you can start with hog bristles inserted into bone. But if you want to make a lot of toothbrushes, uh, which you do if you're a factory, I mean, ultimately, you want, to, you want to look for other sources. They didn't have plastic to make handles out of. So what did they do? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm not t- totally sure. You know, back in the late 1800s, uh, again, they started with bone, then they went to wood. And then at some time in, in the early twenty early twentieth century they went they went to plastics, but they didn't have thermoplastics at the time they used thermoset materials. Um and you know, they didn't really get to thermoplastics until after World War II. But the beauty about thermoplastic materials is that now you can make, you know, thirty two handles at a time and you can you know, you can mold in the holes and you know, you can make thirty two handles in a ten second cycle. So that's really when mass production began in earnest. And then, you know, the the Austrians built these uh the bushery machines that could automatically staple the the bristles into the holes and they did so so fast that you couldn't even see it. Right. So uh, Wasn't really there... this whole thing after World War II is when mass production began really in earnest. Right. I don't know whether this is a question for Terry or Stan, but wasn't there kind of an intermediary thing called the Florence compound where they made the handles sort of before there was plastic out of tree sap mixed with ground walnut shells? No, there there's a quite a history uh you know in, in when the when the Florence Manufacturing companies started making sewing notions and so forth. They were making out a out a out a horn, and which was formed under heat and pressure into things like buttons and sewing notions. And there was a shortage of horn, and um, so uh, so Alfred P. Critchlow, who's the founder of the business back in 1847, he went to he went to England to see what they were doing there to combat the shortage of horn, and and he found out that you know people were making some synthetic materials, and so he came back. And he, they formulated their own synthetic material, which was called a Florence compound, and it was 100% natural. It wasn't like we think of now coming from, you know, barrel oil, but it was, uh, it was what a lot of people in the U.S. considered to be the first plastic material ever manufactured in the U.S. Yeah, and that was the tree sap ground yeah. walnut shell stuff. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's hear another little clip here. Uh, uh, you know, any kind of early manufacturing or assembling work is is hard. Let's hear someone talk about that. My very first job, the first night I went there, and I'll never forget this, I had to put those little rubber tips in the ends of the toothbrushes. And it was a real stinker of a job because your thumb got really sore. So I worked in the factory floor, and that's why I packed brushes. And that was like in the hairbrush packaging department. Then there would be another department where they made the brushes, and it was kind of divided up into two sides, the toothbrush side and the hairbrush side. Every two hours, someone would come around to see how many pieces you had packaged or trimmed or whatever your job was. And they would go in and they'd figure out if you were, what percentage you were working at, you know. The rate was 100 an hour. Were you doing 100? Were you doing 80? Whatever. But if you weren't making the rate, 
then the foreman came out and he wanted to know what was going on why didn't you make the rate so you tried to make the rate because you didn't want that guy coming up and asking you you know stan it is sort of interesting just there is kind of a oral history kind of poetry to people talking about jobs like this oh absolutely i mean the the film really is uh, originally i intended just to do the oral histories and uh as i got further into this, I realized that, you know, you really have to tell the story of the brush shop. And, uh, you know, these stories are so poignant. And you, you, if you've never worked in a factory, you come to realize it's very hard work and oftentimes dangerous, too. Right. Well, there's more to be told, uh, but we've got to take a break here. We've been talking to Stan Shearer, photojournalist, documentary filmmaker of The Brush Shop and member of the Board of Trustees for Historic Northampton, and Terry Minnick, former toothbrush magnate, uh, the uh, last local owner of Pro Brush in Northampton. We're going to take a little break. We're going to tell you uh, even more toothbrush stories after this. I got a toothbrush, you got a toothbrush, everybody's got a toothbrush. Gonna try and brush for at least a couple minutes cause we don't want to make it too rushed. Oh, we're gonna brush our teeth. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, a member of the 1984 Olympic toothbrushing team. How did Denmark ever win the gold? And by me, Kyle Wolf, I'm just trying out this whole toothbrushing thing. It's so much less complicated than the thing with the sesame oil and paper towels and tiny stick and sea salt that they taught us growing up on the commune. I'm going to stay with this. Amanda Fish says, fish do not brush their teeth. The part of Bill Curry was played by Steve Martin. On tomorrow's show, our salute to towels. Meanwhile, ah, the toothpaste got all over the soundboard. Mayday! Mayday! All right, we might have a problem uh, in, in there in the control room, uh, but we'll try to clean up the toothpaste uh, here. Yeah, this has been quite an education, this whole thing. I actually, before we started this whole thing, I thought that uh, Oral B was just Cardi's Methodist brother. Uh, but so we've learned so much. Uh, but we're going to get kind of serious here and kind of serious um, in a way that I think is increasingly uh, poignant. As I travel, uh, particularly to, as I travel in other countries and you go to art exhibits, it's amazing how much of art these days and contemporary art exhibits deal in some way with the refugee crisis, whether it's Syrian refugees or refugees trying to get into this country or or anywhere else. And uh, that is the case with the work of our next guest, Deborah McCullough. Uh, She is an artist and activist, uh, and she's uh, working down in the southern Arizona area and making art about immigrants uh, or people who are attempting to be migrants to this country. but she's using some very particular found objects here. So first of all, uh, Debbie McCullough, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, so tell us what it is you do. First of all, we should say that you've worked out the, the trails that migrants are using in southern Arizona, uh, and you're seeing kind of what gets dropped uh, as they move across the desert. So what are you finding? That's correct. Uh, over the years, um, things have changed, certainly because of the amount of Border Patrol and the, um, the uh, <laughs> enforcement along the border. So that's changed what people, um, how many people we encounter. But we're um, I'm part of an organization called the Tucson Samaritans, and we look for the people that are um, missing and, and left behind or lost in the desert region south of Tucson, Arizona. Um, so we find things like everything from handwritten prayers, prayer cards, Bibles, photos, um, bandanas that might have been worn in the course of clothing, 
worn shoes, and particularly what has struck me is um, some of the personal items, like, um, well, we find foot powder, but uh, toothbrushes and toothpaste. Yeah, so, so why do toothbrushes strike you? Why, why, why focus on them? We should say you're making art out of these toothbrushes, so uh, what's, the, what's the thing that grabs you? What, what grabbed me initially that was that um, I had found some, I was in an area where a lot of backpacks had been uh, left just, just out, and people then had gotten rides to go on to wherever they were going. And I thought, ooh, you know, when I started picking up these backpacks just to see kind of what the contents were, my initial thought was that it would be, they'd be rank, they'd really have a strong odor, like mm. just having been like rotted or just in the sun for a long time. But they had this sweet, familiar smell, <laughs> and it was the smell of toothpaste. And I was really immediately struck by that common humanity and how everybody wants, why, why did I think that it was going to be a nasty smell? Because everybody wants to feel clean and fresh and, and nice. And it, it was just a, it was a real eye-opening moment for me. And so it, was, it became, um, my artwork is really um, emphasizes our shared humanity. And that was something that really struck me at that moment and has stayed with me over the years. When you you've said that when people see your art, they sometimes are surprised that migrants have toothbrushes, uh, which seems odd. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think a lot of people we have this prejudice. We hear so many negative things. You think, oh, they're, they're drug dealers, they're evil people, um, and then we forget that the majority of people coming and when when we you know, we hear we demonize the other, mm. and we hear the awful things, and we're, we often uh, portray them, and then we forget their humanity. We forget the fact that they, of course, they have families they've left behind. They have people they love. They want to feel, they want to feel fresh and clean. The desert is a very, very harsh environment. Mm. It's very, um, it's so drying, and you can't, you can't carry enough water. So uh, last year, 123 people were found in our county who had, um, died mm-hmm. and that the body's completely deteriorated within um, three yes. or four months. Mm-hmm. So it's completely gone. So the 123 people is probably more like 500 people. So, we're, so you, we're, before we run out of time here, this stuff is it's very fascinating. It's very poignant. Also, I want to really encourage people to go to uh, com. That's spelled Debra the way Debra is, M-C-C-U-L-L-O-U-G-H. We'll put this up on, on our webpage, too, so you can take a look at some of the art that Debra is creating here. But uh, there was a woman, a hospital worker, who had taken care of migrants and uh, maybe had gotten, gotten a little bit uh, hardened to their plate. Uh, she came to one of your art exhibits, saw the toothbrushes, and what happened? She just started tearing up and crying, and she's in her first. Her, I walked over to her, and I, because I was struck that that would be the thing that would really uh, affect somebody. And her comment was, "I had forgotten how human they are, how much we have in common." So I think that's really um, the other thing that 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 really speaks to the to the story that the, a toothbrush tells. It's the common thing that we all have in. As you travel around the world, everybody wants to brush their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> everybody has these nice smiles. Uh, so it's, 
Yeah. Well, this is an amazing story. And Debbie McCullough, thank you so much for uh, sharing your art and your stories with us. If you go to WNPR.org, WNPR.org slash Colin, find the webpage for this show. We will show you as much as we can about Debbie's work. It's pretty amazing. All right. We're going to go from the sacred to the canine, uh, which can also be sacred, too. But, you know, you might have heard this whole idea that you have to brush your dog's teeth. I have to say that this is a way in which I have shirked uh, my job as a dog owner with various dogs. And I've always wondered how important it is. Well, Dr. Andrew Flint, veterinarian at Litchfield Hills Mobile Veterinary Clinic in Norfolk, is going to tell us that. So, uh, Dr. Flint, welcome to our show. Well, thanks for having me on, Colin. So, uh, yeah, we'll just begin. I mean, do you, do you tell your the owners of your patients, brush their teeth? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, both, and not, not just dogs, but both dogs and cats. Um, every time a pet gets examined, whether at this clinic or any other clinic, um, looking in their mouth is part of just a standard physical exam. And you look at the teeth to check for tartar and gum inflammation or any teeth that are loose or broken, um, because good, good oral health leads to overall just good general health. And, and Dr. Flynn, do you tell the owners of these cats where to go seek medical treatment after the cat tries to kill them because you tried to brush the cat? The cat is not going to let you brush its teeth, right? Well, some cats will. Some cats won't. Oftentimes I'll get clients when I say, you could try brushing their teeth, and they kind of laugh when I say, well, maybe we'll try some dental treats instead. Um, there are intrinsic challenges with brushing a cat's teeth, I guess you could say, but some cats are pretty tolerant of it. Um, dogs, on the other hand... Uh, tend to be a little more tolerant than cats. Yeah, they do. But uh, it's also, you know, I, I think uh, some of our listeners would probably have stories of just even like going towards their dog with a toothbrush for the first time and having the dog recoil. Uh, I mean, it sort of depends a lot on the dog. But there's is, is there something, I don't know, something bred into them that makes them a little bit reluctant to go there? Uh, I don't know if they have a, a, an inbred fear of the dentist or not. But as you're coming at them with a toothbrush, it can maybe be a little little intimidating towards them. So what, what I always tell people is you have to train them to brush their teeth. So uh, the first thing you start with is a little fingertip brush. It, just, it almost looks like a thimble, but it would go over your index finger and it has little nubs on it. You put the toothpaste on that and you rub their teeth in their gums. Uh, you rub your teeth in their gums with that. And that is how you start to brush their teeth. And usually that tends to work a little bit better than a toothbrush just because you have, you have better control using just your finger. The other thing is the toothpaste that we use there, it's not human toothpaste. You cannot use that for your dogs and your cats. It's pet toothpaste that has enzymatic cleaners in it, and they flare them, so they tend to uh, somewhat enjoy the flavor of them. So now, I'm wondering, like, you know, we're supposed to brush, you know, two or three times a day for two minutes. I'm guessing that's not the case with uh, dogs and cats. Like, how often do you have to brush your cat's or dog's teeth? We, we like to have people brush their teeth. They can do it once a week. That's great. I do have some clients that brush the teeth every single day. They're, they're definitely outliers in terms of uh, people who are hypervigilant about the whole thing. But uh, if somebody will brush their teeth once a week, even every two weeks, that helps. I, I do recommend a lot of different dental treats. And what the dental treats entail is they're a little bit harder to chew through than the regular dry kibble. And if they have any tartar on their teeth as they bite into the food, it just helps um, scrape a bunch of the tartar off their teeth, and it somewhat gets up underneath their gums, but not as well as a as a professional cleaning. When you say a professional cleaning, uh, I, I'm guessing that you didn't go to veterinary college so that you could brush dogs' teeth. Are we talking about groomers? Like who does, you know, who does the professional cleaning? 
So it's done at a veterinary office by a, a veterinarian and, uh, and a veterinary technician. So we, we do them here in the clinic. And there are groomers that will brush teeth, uh, but they, they can't get up underneath the gum line. And that's where a lot of the bacteria will sit that will then cause gingivitis, which is inflammation of the gums, which then leads to other health problems. Uh, for a, a cleaning here in the hospital, we, anesthet- we fully anesthetize them. We intubate them so that way we protect their airways so no you know, water gets down in their lungs. And then you scale and polish the teeth the same way the dentist would scale and polish your teeth when you go to the dentist. Uh, you get up underneath the gum line. You make sure everything's nice and clean. You probe to make sure none of the teeth are uh, – there's no infections or none of the teeth are loose or, or anything like that. Um, you it's nice to take um, full x-rays of the mouth to make sure all the roots look good. And uh, then you wake them up and they go home with nice, happy, clean teeth. And, and you tell people start brushing their teeth. Right. I'd like to say I don't require an anesthetic just to get my teeth cleaned. Uh, my dentist needs, uses just some hand puppets uh, to distract yeah. me and, 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 and then does give me a bacon treat at the end. So it's, so it's probably, I mean, basically what you want to do, I assume, is take – you know, the reason to brush your dog's teeth on your own, if you can get the dog or cat to go along with it, is you kind of not only help improve their health, but probably save a little money down the line. What you just described oh, yeah. sounds like it might be a little on the pricey side. Yeah, if, if, if you can avoid having if you can avoid having their teeth cleaned here in a clinic, um, it, it has definite benefits, uh, you know, financially. You don't have to the big thing is you don't have to worry about anesthetic risks. And there are some dogs and cats that their entire lives, they never have to have their teeth cleaned. And others, it seems we're cleaning their teeth all the time, and it's it's just the way the enzymes and the bacteria in their mouth interact with one another is is uh, in terms of how much food and, and tartar um, kind of forms up on their teeth. All right. Well, Dr. Andrew Flint, a veterinarian at Litchfield Hills Mobile Veterinary Clinic in Norfolk, uh, thank you very much for talking to me. And I have some very exciting news, which is that we will very soon be posting a video by Carlos Mejia, the noted filmmaker Carlos Mejia, of Betsy Kaplan brushing the teeth of Tucker Ives's dog, Tucker Ives and Jillian's dog, uh, Ziggy. And Betsy should be rejoining our staff in a couple of weeks when the scar tissue forms a little bit more and she's, you know, able to use her hands a little bit better. <laughs> no, I think it went okay. Took, like, Ziggy didn't bite you or anything, did he? No, okay. But we will anyway. If you want to <laughs> watch a video of somebody brushing a dog's teeth, First of all, you need help. You know, either that or you have that ASMR problem or something. But anyway, we're going we're gonna to give it to you. No questions asked. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And we're going to continue with more of this insanity tomorrow.